If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We will be in verse 1 of Luke chapter 8 this week. Once you have found that spot in your Bible, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and of their diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, these provided for them out of their means. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we continue our study in Luke's gospel this evening, we come to a text that is really a summary of much of the rest of Jesus' ministry. And you will find that summary there in verse 1 of Luke chapter 8. And when we see these kinds of summaries, when we see these kinds of statements, it's tempting, I think, for many of us to read the summary, believe that we understand all that is implied in the summary, and and move on to the next parable, the next miracle, the next healing, uh, the next story that we're familiar with. And that story, you'll notice if you look in your Bibles, is the, the parable of the sower and the seeds. And while that is a wonderful story, it will have to wait till next week, or I should say two weeks from now, because this week we will be spending time in these verses and really diving into this concept that Jesus is preaching about here. And that concept, I'll summarize it for you, is the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the one dominant thing that Jesus preaches and proclaims throughout his whole ministry. And if that's what Jesus was preaching about, if that's what John the Baptist preached about before Jesus, then we as Christians who follow in the discipleship of Jesus would be wise to know what is all encompassing about that gospel of the kingdom of God. If I was to ask you, what is the one dominant through line throughout all of the story of scripture, do you think you'd be able to compose a reply to that? If you feel that you couldn't, don't worry. Because about a couple months ago, I was sitting in a seminary class when that same question was put to us students in the class, and many of us struggled to put together anything that could be deemed as a coherent response. We would ramble, we would guess, we would speculate, but very few of us could put our arms around the entire narrative of Scripture. And then our professor diligently and very graciously walked us through that narrative, And so it is my intention to try to do the same with you this evening, to give you that big picture overview of scripture, which Jesus here preaches about. And that narrative is really the narrative of God's coming kingdom to restore all of creation. And that narrative doesn't start in Luke's gospel. It doesn't start in Matthew's gospel. It starts thousands of years before that in the Garden of Eden. And that narrative we're told right at the beginning is that there is a God, a king over all creation, and he's king because he created all of creation. He created a perfect garden and he put people in that garden to dwell. And those people in that garden rebelled against God and they were cast out of his beautiful kingdom and put to the plow and put to hard labor and cursed to be in their rebellion and in their wickedness and in their depravity until God would be pleased to once again redeem humanity unto himself. 
And that is, let's say, the seed of that kingdom. And that kingdom comes to its full manifestation in Jesus' life and work. And ultimately, we are awaiting the fruition of that kingdom in the future. So as we embark on our time tonight, starting with that seed, I want to examine this, uh, this dominant through line of the whole Bible from Old Testament to New, the dominant thing that connects the whole Bible together, which is the kingdom of God. And so we're going to be popping in a few places in Scripture, but we're going to be mainly here in Luke and a couple of places in Psalms, so just have that ready to turn when, when we get there. The first thing I want to point out is that when we're looking at this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God, we recognize that this is God's plan all along throughout all of Scripture. When Jesus comes on the scene to redeem fallen humanity, that is not plan B, C, or D for God. We are told in Ephesians that God's plan throughout the whole history of the universe before time began was to predestine unto himself a people chosen by God to be his people. And we're told that that was true even before the fall in the garden because the fall happens in the annals of time. And so if it's before history began, it must have been that this plan was hatched before time itself began. And this plan of God is unfolding on the pages of Scripture And often for us, as we're reading these pages of Scripture, it's difficult for us to figure out how God could possibly be in control of such a chaotic and such such an erratic people such as the Israelites. And we see in their rebellion our own rebellion, just as we see in Adam's rebellion our rebellion also. And that rebellion starts with us, remember, on the pages of Genesis where God creates everything perfect and there is the fall. And as God sets about his work of bringing his kingdom about in creation, he tells us this story through 39 books in the Old Testament and then confirms that story in the 27 books of the New Testament. But I think as Christians, we often start in the New Testament. And so when Jesus says things like this, that he is preaching the kingdom of God, we assume, oh, that's the gospel. And it certainly is the gospel. It's actually the gospel of the kingdom of God. But to understand all that the gospel is and to avoid distortion of the gospel, we need to understand that as being rooted in the overall story of Scripture. Think about some errors that could arise if we just hear Jesus preaching about the gospel, not explaining all that it is because his people understood what it was. And when we get to this, we can go, Jesus, the gospel is that Jesus is my personal helper. He exists in my life to help me live a better life to help me be happier, to help me not be sad all the time, to help me not be alone. He exists to help me have a better career, a better house, a more fulfilling life. That's one distortion we can arrive at if we hear the gospel and we divorce it from the theology of the kingdom of God. We can become convinced that the good news of the kingdom of God is that you and I are supposed to go into the world and enact social change, that our chief mission, that our chief goal is to make sure that the hungry are fed, that the poor are taken care of, that widows and orphans are well looked after. That could be a distortion that we aim at. And all of these distortions, those two really extremes of the distortions, being too focused on the actual social work in our lives and also too internally focused as well, those two extremes are are corrected by a correct understanding of what the kingdom of God is. So we're going to go to the Old Testament. We're going to pick up what this dominant through line is. And then by the time we arrive to the New Testament, when Jesus says he's preaching about the kingdom of God, we'll know all that he's discussing, just as his disciples and the Jewish people in his day knew what he was referring to. So if I can make reference to some books, and we're going to turn to some places as well, 
Um, the first book I want to make reference to is once again Genesis, but after the fall, after Jesus, or after God has cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, the next thing that happens in the narrative is God sets about his work of making sure that humanity is going to be taken care of. He chooses a man out of humanity to bring to himself, Noah, out of all the wicked people in the world, and he says, Noah, I'm going to save you and your family, and we're going to have almost a new creation. We're going, to, we're going to destroy the whole wicked world, and you and your family are going to be responsible for cultivating and subduing the world because it's going to be just you. I'm putting my trust and my kingdom in your hands for you to go throughout all the world, subdue, and cultivate it. And as soon as Noah lands and the ark, uh, the ark takes its root and they, they come out of the ark, the very first thing that happens is Noah and all his family begin sinning once again because such is the nature of man. And this is not God getting back to the drawing board because the next thing that God does is put his favor on a man named Abraham and calls him out of all the world to be his people. And he says, Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. You will not be able to count them. This is a man who's infertile. And the kingdom drama for really the rest of Genesis unfolds with the story of Abraham's lineage. His descendants, who are going to be the chosen people of God, ultimately being preserved and protected through famine by God's providence in Joseph's life to put Joseph in leadership over the Egyptian people so that his chosen lineage of Abraham's line could be well taken care of in a time of great famine. And that prophecy then is told by, uh, by Isaac, or sorry, by Israel, and he prophesies over all of his children. And one of the prophecies that he says, this is to the tribe of Judah, is that you, Judah, are a lion's cub, and the scepter will not depart from your house. And that's a strange prophecy because up until this point, there's not kingdoms being mentioned. There's not authority or rulership being mentioned anywhere except for from God. And what God is saying through his prophecy there in Genesis 49 is that my king is going to dwell on the earth through the line of Judah. And you pick that story up then hundreds of years later when the Israelites have been enslaved by the Egyptians and God sends his, servants, his servant Moses into Egypt to deliver them from an old kingdom and into the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham. And he takes them from their enslavement to Pharaoh, a bad king, a bad ruler, a bad head, and leads them into the promised land where now he is their ruler and their king and their head. And he does so through Moses' authority, through the authority of the Levitical priesthood. And he establishes his kingdom. And then if you'll turn with me, the first text I want to look at is Deuteronomy 17, where God once again prophesies about a king through Moses. Deuteronomy 17 is the last instructions that Moses gives, uh, really summarizing all of his teaching to the Israelites. Something we often skip over is that God always had a plan for a king to rule over the Israelites. And we're told about it here in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. He says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away 
nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And when you compare that institution of God putting a king over Israel, his, his provided or his, his prescribed king to the Israelites, you'll recognize that the rest of the story in Joshua, Judges, and all the way through to 2 Kings take very much time to let us know that none of the kings meets this standard. Not one of them. David, who is the chief of the kings, the best, most, uh, most lofty of the kings, he falls short. He, he misses this standard. Not only does he acquire for himself many wives, as is clear in First and Second Samuel, also David has a problem with the, th- the fact that he thinks the kingdom is his. He counts, remember, that one of his great sins is that he counts all the people in the kingdom to see how far his kingdom has now extended. So he's in violation of not one, but two of the commandments here. And so David can't be the king. Solomon can't be the king because he also acquires for himself many wives and much wealth. And then all of the other kings fall short in many of these other ways. They actually lead Israel astray. They don't write copies of the book of the law, and they lead Israel both to the right and to the left, away from God and into idol worship. And so if God had within his plan of redemption for his people to have a king over them, and none of the kings that are told about from this time until the time of the exile meet that standard, then we're left with the conclusion, which is the conclusion the rabbis are left with, that the king is still coming. There's still a king that we are waiting for. And from the time of Deuteronomy all the way until the time that they return from exile, no king has met the standard. And even when they return back from exile, they're commissioned by Cyrus to come and rebuild Jerusalem. They don't rebuild Jerusalem into its former glory. Certainly not the glory that the major or the minor prophets describe of wanting and longing for God to be enthroned in Zion, to be king over his people, to rule and to reign over them through his king. It's not that glory that's being met in those, uh, in those days. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, this prophecy is still open-ended, that a king will rule and reign who God will have favor with. And when we're, when we're then asking the question, well, what else is, is missing? What else from the Old Testament narrative adds to this picture of the king? The very next thing you want to go to to color this in is the Psalter. First and second Psalms color for us some of this imagery. And if you'll turn to Psalm 1 first, and we'll look at both Psalm 1 and 2, which, by the way, are chronologically not the first two Psalms ever written. The Psalter is not arranged in chronological order. It's arranged thematically. And the introduction to all 150 Psalms is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which gives the guardrails for the Psalter. And it talks about the man who is the righteous man, who does not walk in the way of sinful people, He delights in the law of the Lord, similar to how the king was taught to delight in the law of the Lord. And he comes and he uh, he drives away the wicked. And the Lord knows the way of this righteous man. And the way of the wicked will ultimately perish. And then right into Psalm 2, you see that this king is actually the son of God, who rules and reigns 
on high. Verse 7 of Psalm 2 says, I will tell of the decree that is the Lord who sent me. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And verse 12 of Psalm 2 summarizes this very nicely. When it refers to all of the nations of the world who are in rebellion to this king, it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the whole Psalter is then introduced with this idea that there is a king who is coming, a king who will be obedient to God's law, who will be blessed by God, who will have favor with God, who will also be the son of God. The son of God, greater than David, greater than any of the other kings that have ruled or reigned. And then, turn with me to Psalm 145, where it exalts God's throne and authority. Psalm 145, really towards the end of the Psalter, in the last couple of Psalms, there's a couple of verses that point to Israel's prophets and their contemplation over what this king will be like, what will God's throne be like, what will his leadership and rule be like. And it's a song of praise to God, and it starts off in verse 1, I will extol you, or I will worship you, or I will praise you, my God and king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for his greatness is unsearchable. And when we're asking the question, is this just talking about God in heaven? Look at verse 13 of Psalm 145, where he describes the kingdom in this way. He says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It's similar in language to what he promises to Abraham to what he promises to David in 2 Samuel. So we know, based on the reflection of this psalmist, that this is not a kingdom that is just on high in heaven. This is a kingdom that will ultimately also find its fulfillment on the earth, one that will have an everlasting domain, an everlasting rule throughout all generations. And so the king who rules over that kingdom must also be an everlasting king who rules and reigns for all generations. And so as the Psalter contemplates what this king will be like and who he will be and what his kingdom ultimately will look like, we get the major prophets who long for this king. And in those, I would like to turn to Daniel as one of the major prophets who reflects on this king. And it's really Daniel chapter 7. That is the one that I would like to look at. Remember, Daniel takes his, uh, his, dominant, uh, his dominant writings are all prophecies. He certainly lives in, in much narrative, and those stories are ones that we tell often. But one of the biggest contributions Daniel has to the Old Covenant is this prophecy here. In Daniel 7, he refers to a man called the Ancient of Days. He says in verse 9 of Daniel 7, And as I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books 
were opened. And Daniel, later in his prophecy, in verse 13 and 14, says that there is one who takes the throne from the Ancient of Days, one like a son of man, who comes and to him is given, verse 14, dominion and a kingdom and glory and peoples and nations and languages that will serve him. And this dominion, this kingdom is described as an everlasting dominion, one which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And Daniel, as a close to the major prophets, speaks of this king and the kingdom and what it ought to be like. And one more of the prophets in the Old Testament, this one is Obadiah. It's one of the minor prophets. And it's Obadiah verse 21, because there's only one chapter in Obadiah. Verse 21 of Obadiah says this, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom, which is over Mount Zion and Mount Esau, it shall be the Lord's kingdom. And Obadiah speaks on behalf, in this, in this witness right now, on behalf of all of the minor prophets, because all of the minor prophets speak of God's coming dominion, his coming kingdom. Some more than others, some long for it, some prophesy about it, some long for the former glory of Israel, all reflect on God being sovereign, God being king, and his kingdom being one that doesn't exist just in heaven, it also here exists in Mount Zion, to rule and to reign. And then, we get to the old of, or sorry, the end of the Hebrew Bible, which in your English Bible, the 12, the minor prophets, are the last thing you get to before you turn your page to Matthew. But in the Hebrew Bible, the last two books that are written are First and Second Chronicles. And in First and Second Chronicles, you have the lineage of King David reestablished, David and all of the kings and their, uh, their accounts rehashed. And all of that is not to bore you when you're reading your Bible, All of that is to underscore as an interpretation of all of the rest of the Old Testament. What are the Jewish people supposed to expect as coming next? And the very last thing that happens in 2 Chronicles is King Cyrus commissions out the people to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. And we find them really in Luke, in the time of Jesus, having rebuilt a somewhat kind of like the former glory of Jerusalem city. But it's not Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem in the glory described by anyone who wrote beforehand. It's not the glory described in the Psalter. And there's no king over this city. The Jewish people have no king. They have a high priest. They have a priesthood. But they have Herod who sits over their throne. No son of Judah. No son of Jesse. They have, they have no one who's sitting on the throne. No one who has prophesied for them. And then you get Jesus on the scene, who Luke takes careful pains to tell us that Jesus is in this lineage of David. Matthew does the same thing. And all of them land in some statement like this, what we just read in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, that Jesus is not only healing people, he's not only the great one who is to come that John the Baptist talked about, his message is this, 
that he preaches about the good news of the kingdom of God. And when you hear that, out of all of the uh, texts that we just read about the kingdom, it might color in for you the vast theology that has been laid out in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And now you might be asking this question, well, I thought that the message of the Bible was the gospel, that Jesus saved me, that he saved me from my sin, and I'm longing one day to be with him. And it is. But to understand the gospel without distortion, we need to understand the gospel not as you are personally saved, and the whole thing is you introspectively looking at your sins. The gospel is about you pledging allegiance to the king who's coming to rule and reign. And that pledge of allegiance looks like repenting of your old sins, being bought by the blood of that king, and being then put into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness, rescued from the destruction which was going to be yours, and rightly so, you're brought out of the rebellion that was kicked out of Eden, and you are going to be brought into the new Eden as it's being established in the new covenant. Because the story, remember, in Luke's gospel is really only part of the narrative that we get, and the ultimate anticipation of where this kingdom is going is actually in Revelation, and that's the last text I want to turn to as we look at this kingdom theme, is Revelation 21. Remember, the problem in Genesis is that God and man cannot dwell together because of man's sin. And by the time you get to Revelation 21, you get these words prophesied and spoken of in verse 3 of Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor any pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that son of man, the one who takes the throne from the ancient of days, says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also says, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, this is John, he says to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty from the spring of water to life without repayment. To the one who conquers, I will have his, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so you notice that when John writes about the kingdom, the one who sits on the throne, it's not different than what Paul writes about when he writes about the kingdom. Because the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you need a king to come save you. And that king isn't a genie who makes you feel better about your sin, and then you can move on with your life and continue living how you want. He's the king over your life, which means he's not just part of your life that you put in a corner and bring out when other Christians are around. He is the sum and substance of all that you do on a week in and week out basis. When the old covenant is inaugurated and the Israelite, is, the Israelite kingdom is being established, one of the things that happens is the building of the tabernacle. And in the building of the tabernacle, God commissions for himself people who work with their hands 
to craft the beauty of the tabernacle. Because the kingdom is not just for people who preach and teach and for devotional time and reading your Bible. It's all of the work that you do. So these two men go and they build the tabernacle. They build all the glory of God as was described and given to Moses. And they, de- and they do so with the skills God has given them to do those things with. So when you and I refer to the kingdom of God and we come here on Sunday to worship together, we don't do so saying that somehow this is holy time and when you go out there, you're no longer participating in the kingdom. You have to wait till you get back next Sunday. When you go and you turn in homework or you do work for your boss or you, or you are the boss over other people, you do all of that under the kingdom and authority of the king. Paul talks about in Ephesians that as slaves interact with their masters, they must do so under the, under the realization, under the recognition that they both answer to a higher master. So when they work, when they cultivate that work, when they engage in the ministry that they engage in, not the reading of scripture. For them, it's, you know, the, the cleaning of houses, the feeding of tables, the making sure that the sick are taken care of. When all of that ministry is being done, both in the secular workplace and really in Christian churches, all of it is done in answering to the king. And in this kingdom, there is no higher positions of power or authority. There's one king who rules and reigns, and there's all the king's subjects. That's the only way that the kingdom is structured. There's not a king who inaugurates for himself a junior king, and that junior king administers his authority. There's none of that. The king rules by his own word as it is preached and proclaimed to his people. That's why when we gather as a church, we gather here for worship, and we don't talk about things that would make our lives better. We don't preach about ourselves. We don't preach about things that would make us feel good feelings. We preach through the Bible because the Bible is God's word, and it's how he exercises his kingdom and his lordship over us even today. Thousands of years after he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he still rules and reigns even over his church. And the church is not ultimately the kingdom of God. The church is kind of the interim vehicle in between the kingdom being inaugurated and the kingdom finally being established. Because even now we can confess that the kingdom of God does not right now look like what was all described in the prophets. We know that it doesn't look like what was described there in Revelation 21, certainly not, because there's still pain, there's still heartache, there's still brokenness in this world. And so that dominant theme of the kingdom of God, the thing that we proclaim, is our salvation into God's kingdom, but also simply the fact that God is king. Jesus rules and reigns, which means that as we interact with people of different faiths or who don't share our convictions and beliefs, we don't tuck the Bible away or our beliefs away because we're worried about our opinions offending them because these are not our opinions. These are the ultimate truths of reality. And so when we proclaim, we proclaim really with a a hint of confidence, with a hint of assurance that these things that we preach, these things that we believe, are re- this is reality. This is how all of reality will unfold. And so as we look then at the dominant theme of the Bible, it's about the king coming to restore his fallen creation, and he will do it because he has done it. Because the pinnacle of that kingdom, in both the Gospels and really in the whole New Testament, is unlike what was really expected in the Old Testament. The Old Testament expects the king to come, rule, and reign dominantly the first time he comes. But instead, he comes to die on a cross because there was something that needed to be done before the whole kingdom could be established, which is that the king needed 
people to rule over. And as he comes to grab his people, he cannot do so without first paying the price for their redemption. And he does so by himself coming and dying on a cross in their stead now, so that they can now be his people and he can be their God. As Paul says, so he can be both the just and the justifier of his people. And that's really where Jesus comes in when he's preaching about the kingdom of God. Peter accepts this teaching, but when Jesus turns around and says, so I must go to a cross to die, Peter says, no, not that way. And he's rebuked for that because Jesus knows what the mission of this kingdom entails. And what's clear to us now, thousands of years later, was not so clear to the disciples in the first century. They were confused about how the kingdom is going to unfold. And this is true for us because if you look at even at Acts, you see that they ask, is now the time that the kingdom is fulfilled? Are you now going to be seated on high? And he says, no. But I send you out as my witnesses into all the world, to Judea, to Samaria, all, all over the world, to preach and to proclaim about the kingdom. So as you and I think about what role we play in this kingdom and what role is, is really for us, you'll notice a couple of things, even that's true here in the text in Luke. The first thing is that the one who preaches about the kingdom in Luke's day and age is Jesus. He preaches and proclaims the good news of the kingdom. But the second thing you'll notice in these verses is that he's not alone. The 12 are also with him. And when he ascends on high, the 12 take up that preaching ministry and continue going forward with it. And by the time that Paul writes, as really one of the last living apostles, he writes to Timothy and he says, don't depart from the preaching of sound doctrine and the teaching of the word of God. Because this is the mission for which Jesus came, and this is the mission for which he commissions his servants to go into the world, to preach and proclaim the coming kingdom of God. Which means we don't do the kingdom of God. We don't build the kingdom of God. We don't even really grow the kingdom of God. We preach about the kingdom of God, and the Holy Spirit and Jesus does all the rest of it. That's all that we do. We preach and we teach, and that is it. Full and final. And the other thing that's really being answered in these verses is something that might stand out to us as strange when, you re- when we read them in context, right? You'll notice that in verse 2 and verse 3 of Luke chapter 8, you have a list of women, some who have been healed of evil spirits, some who have been healed of diseases, and we're listed. We're told there's Mary Magdalene, there's Joanna, who's the wife of one of Herod's uh, stewards, and then you have a woman named Susanna, and then many others, right? And you might ask the question, what does that have to do with the preceding verse? What, what is this be, why are these being mentioned together? Has Luke somehow forgotten to remove this part and then put it somewhere else where it would fit better? And we recognize that if you, if you zoom out and you go to the big picture of what Luke is talking about, you'll notice that in Luke 6, he starts talking about what the kingdom is like. Remember, Jesus preaches and teaches about the kingdom. And then in Luke 7, it starts telling us about who is included in this kingdom. There's the centurion, who's included in Jesus' healing work. There's the widow who's taken care of through his healing work. And then there's John the Baptist, the doubter. There's the Pharisees who are really rejected from being part of the kingdom. There's kind of those on the fence who are John the Baptist's disciples who are questioning about the kingdom. And then in Luke 7, it concludes with that sinful woman who Jesus also refers to as being forgiven, and so therefore part of this kingdom. And to clarify that it's not just that women are recipients of the kingdom, They're also participants in the kingdom. You'll notice here that these women are not just receiving the ministry of Jesus. They're also now participating in and engaging in that ministry as well. 
Mary called Magdalene, she's one who gets to be the first witness to the resurrection of the Lord. She's the first one who he shows up to. And then she runs and tells the other apostles that he's out of the grave. Joanna and Susanna, we don't know really much about them in the rest of scripture. But they're mentioned here because in this case, they're using their wealth, they're using their means to provide for these traveling apostles and Jesus. And really the word there is that they're ministering to them out of their means. They're ministering to these men who are preaching and teaching about the kingdom. And they're doing so, and Luke is elevating their role in doing this. What we run the risk of today is, is twofold. We run the risk, one, of skipping these verses and missing that Luke is elevating the role of women in the kingdom to be part of this kingdom. But the other thing that we might miss is we, we could say that because Luke elevates women here, that he's really doing a kind of undue elevation, that he's elevating to the, them, for example, to the role of apostles because they're listed here with the apostles. And I don't think that's what Luke is going for. Luke here is elevating the women to be part of the kingdom, to be ministers in the kingdom. And that's true because when Paul writes his letters, they're delivered by Phoebe, who's referred to uh, as a deacon of, of the church. And you have women who are doing all kinds of ministry, even in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, who are doing ministry, who are engaging in the mission of the church. And so they're part of this kingdom and they're participants in the kingdom. But the other risk that we run is by making an improper elevation we run the risk of, of trying to make Luke say more than he's saying here. Because what he's not saying is that these women are 12 apostles as well, and that they go with the apostles on equal footing with them. He's clear about what their role is and what their distinction is. And he doesn't treat that like it's bad news. He doesn't treat that like it's an improper thing. He doesn't even treat that like he's shy about it. Because what he's really saying is kind of a countercultural elevation of his day. He's not forgetting the women and putting them out of the kinghood, the, this new kingdom. Because remember, women in the old covenant are recipients of the old covenant, but they're not really participants in that old covenant. They're not Levites, they're not priests, they're not really able to engage in any of that system. But in the new covenant, the women are able to engage in much of the ministry. They, for example, can pull Apollos aside and they can teach him right doctrine, which is what happens and how Apollos ends up being a good preacher one day is because Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and teach him what's actually true about scripture. And so the women play a vital role in the New Testament. They play a vital role in the church even today. But they don't play a role that some push for, and we need to be careful to guard against. And we need to guard against both those extremes. And so I suppose then the last question in these verses is how, if we understand the kingdom, and we understand who's a participant in this kingdom and who is uh, engaging in it, who's a recipient of it, how then, how can we magnify the king? How do we bring him glory due to his name? Well, the one thing we can certainly say is that the king will get his glory. It's clear in Revelation. It's clear in Luke's gospel. In fact, Jesus, remember, he says when he's riding into, into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry that if people stop praising my name, even the rocks will cry out about who I am. So we know that he's going to get his glory. I suppose then the question selfishly is, how can we participate in the joy of worshiping the king? And we do so by gathering together as believers and then scattering into our workplaces, all the while living in submission to the king. When we gather together, we preach Christ and him crucified. We proclaim the glory of the king. We long for him to be enthroned in this world. 
And even when we go and we pray together, Jesus tells us to to pray that thy kingdom come and thy will be done. So we pray for the kingdom to come. We then preach about the coming of the kingdom. And then when we go into our workplaces, we work and we labor as though he is the king, because he is. And so that means when you go into your workplaces, work as though Jesus is king. Work as though you're not submitting to a human authority or a human teacher when you turn in your assignments. Work as though Jesus and God are looking at you with the time, skills, and talents that they've given you. And they are, and you are going to give an account for the work that you do. Because he's king. And that doesn't just mean preaching. He's king over all of the world. And it also means when we relate with people, with our family members, with our friends, with co-workers, we must relate to them in terms of Jesus being king. Which doesn't mean we have to get up and preach to people when it's not, it's not an expected thing. We're not supposed to just go out and, and become weird people and engage as, so, as though somehow the louder we are, the more faithful we are. But we certainly are called to share the news of this king with people. Whether that be first through our actions and then subsequently with our, with our words, or whether it be with our, uh, our values that we share and that leads to a conversation, all of us are responsible for that ministry. That's not restrained for the apostles. That's not restrained to these women listed here who had means and wealth. That is every single disciple's job in the New Testament, to go out into all the world and to preach and teach about Jesus Christ, to live out in, in reality that he is in fact king. And all the churches then to gather together and worship him because he is king. And that's the pattern of life as Christians. That's why this gospel message is not something that's just out in the corner that we keep in our private lives to make us feel better. And it's also not something that we then go and we try to enact social change because neither of those are really the focus of the kingdom. Both of those things can happen as an outflowing of the kingdom being what it is. We can certainly feel better about ourselves in light of who Jesus is. And we can certainly go and feed the poor and the hungry because of who Jesus is. That's just not the mission. That's just not the dominant theme of the New Testament. And that's not the dominant thrust of any of our lives. It's it's told to us here. The dominant thrust is to go and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what we do through our work, through our relationships, and in all that we do, we proclaim Christ as king. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are king. Lord, would your name be magnified and lifted up in our worship, in our prayer, in our lives, Lord? Would you be lofty and lifted up as Isaiah saw you? Would you reign and rule in our hearts? Would you call us into submission to your word? And Lord, would you grant us the grace to live out the obedience that you've required from us? Because we cannot be obedient apart from you. We don't even know which way to go apart from you. So Lord, would you be glorified even in this time of worship as we continue through the singing of hymns and songs? Would you be magnified as we converse and we, uh, we pray? Would you be magnified even as we work, Lord, in this week? That we would do all things under the reality, the abiding reality, that you are king. We ask and we pray in your name. Amen.